You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome back to Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr with Jack Bevere. We are joined today by attorney Doug Stein. Uh, having a fascinating conversation on episode 29. If you didn't catch it, I would highly recommend going back and checking that one out, especially uh, for real, uh, honestly, for every real estate Everybody, investor, yeah. Jack. That episode was uh, timely in that uh, laws have changed. And so you really should go back and check that, that episode out. Doug, welcome back to the show. Really appreciate your time. Can't thank you enough for it. Um, Jack, uh, in this episode, we're going to talk, I guess, about some of the changes that occur between 22 and 23 that folks should be thinking about now as they speak with their accountants and attorneys. As well, um, love to get into some of the changes in 24 that uh, we could be planning for now as we prepare for next year's filings. So, Doug, thank you so much for your time. Can't thank you enough. Um, it, it's been fascinating thus far. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's jump in. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the changes to bonus depreciation. That's one that we've been benefiting from for the past real estate investors who are adding rental properties, holding real estate for more than a year, and taking depreciation have been benefiting from. At least I hope you guys are uh, for a while. Um, Doug, give us the quick background on that and how that's changing right now. Sure. So when the rules when the rules first came out for bonus depreciation, it allowed real estate investors and others to bonus depreciate one hundred percent. Uh, those numbers uh, last year for 2023 went down to 80%, and they're currently and, scheduled to go down. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And just a, just a point of clarification, uh, you're able to 100% bonus depreciate the five and 15-year components of your real estate. There's another component that's 27 and a half year that was not eligible for the bonus depreciation, but it still became a, pr a pretty material chunk, right? You know, somewhere between... I don't know, 10 and 30% of your basis, depreciable basis was eligible to be taken as depreciation, bonus depreciated in the first year. And Doug, sorry, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you there. And no, that's it was, down. You know, it was a big deal. It was a real, real improvement to cash flow, right? Because you're paying less taxes and you're taking these huge depreciation deductions up front. Um, and people were looking hard for the right assets that they can do. And obviously, if you've got Residential, that's one thing. If you got commercial, it's a different. Every property is different. Uh, but I think 10 to 30% is probably right. We've seen higher for some clients. Uh, they've obviously pushed it as hard as they could and really got someone in there to look at it. Uh, but it used to be 100%. In 2023, that depreciation deduction dropped to 80%. Still a good hit. Um, people I know late last year were running around very hard looking at their properties, and they will be doing that at least in 2024 up until, up until they file their returns. 2024, that calculus changes substantially. It's now down to 60%, and it's scheduled to go down by 20 percentage points each year until we get to zero. So basically another three years. So properties that you acquire this year uh, will be subject to the 60% max as opposed to 100%. That's going to change, I think, the arithmetic on some properties to the extent you're buying them with the expectation for those depreciation deductions. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Congress changes it. There's been some discussion of that. Uh, we'll see what Congress does later this year. Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you about. Do you think that that's going to be modified? Or are they just going to let it phase out and then that was it? It's gone, you know, it's, you know, so long. Or do, or do you think it'll be thrown back on the table in a new in a new tax bill? I think once the um, 
once you know who's running for president, who the actual parties are, and the two people or three people, depending on you know how we're looking at this, uh, we'll have a much better sense. Don't get um, us started, and, Doug. Don't get us started. You know, um, I miss the days when election season was short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that wasn't the case. This, this is gonna this phase out right now is a big change. Particularly, there were folks two or three years ago, even that um, a lot of syndications, you know, real estate syndications, were even included in their advertising. One of the big selling points was, and you can we've already done a cost segregation study, and here's how much your allocated bonus depreciation is going to be because the tax benefit from making an LP investment and then getting a call it twenty percent write off of that investment. Uh, in the first year was a material part of the sales pitch, right? To get LPs into these multifamily deals, particularly other real estate asset classes as well. But we saw it a lot in multifamily. And especially so, the deals that were particularly skinny, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like if they were leading with that, you know, if you're, if you're leading with the tax benefits and not the cash flow and the quality of the asset, you know, right. you know, maybe your eyebrow, hopefully your eyebrow gets raised a little bit, but, but it was a material <laughs> impact. So, uh, you know, folks were, you know, Folks were looking for that, and um, so that's going to be, uh, you know, kind of an arrow in the um, an arrow in the quiver that that uh, general partners syndicators don't have as much uh, on a going forward basis. So on a relative value point of view, the same cap rate is now on an after tax basis not the same, you know, not not as attractive as it was when that bonus was a hundred was a hundred percent. So yeah, and that's just going to get worse as time goes on unless there's a change. Yeah, I mean, the economics of those deals are going to change until Congress acts. I don't think it's going away forever. I think Congress will come back. I don't think it'll be 100%. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's more likely they'll come back at a 60, 75, 80% uh, for an extended period of time. But it will not, ha in my opinion, it won't happen until the next administration, whoever that administration may be. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, five and 15 year components only. Is that clear of what those components are? Or is that also a, a murky waters that that uh, the average investor has to traverse? Well, you're supposed uh, to do a cost segregation study for every property, whether that property is a five million dollar office building or a hundred thousand dollar rental property. The safe harbor, Doug, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the safe harbor doesn't exist unless there is a cost segregation study, and there are firm, you know, large CPA firms that have in-house cost segregation uh, departments. There are companies, uh, KBKG is one that we've seen used a fair amount that do this on, on a consulting basis um, as their core business. Um, but those, and, and th those cost segregation studies are not cheap though, right? You're supposed to send a human into the property and have them literally fill out a 60 page report of all of the different things that are in the house and the IRS regs will then tell you whether this is five year, 15 year or 27 and a half year property. And based off of that report, you hand that to your accountant and then they calculate the percentages and fill out your tax return appropriately. Um, there are a bunch of hacks that have kind of become you know, popular uh, that are not covered under the safe harbor, but are better than nothing, better than just coming, you know, putting your finger up in the air and coming up with an allocation out of the clear blue sky. Um, but the IRS regs are very clear, like the, the field guidelines that are given to my understanding is the field guidelines that are given to IRS agents are very clear on what is protect on, on what is correct and what is, you know, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And that band of acceptable is quite narrow. 
Mm. So in the context of an audit, it's an it's a point of exposure for everybody who doesn't have a full cost seg. Um, so that's that's definitely a, a you know in that spectrum of risk that I was mentioning in, in the previous episode that Doug is good about hand, helping helping investors handicap. That's something that um, that we've had to make some judgment calls on, frankly. Jack, yeah. as a lender, um, as a lender to investors all across the country at every level, um, where what's what's the line of of investor to where a cost segregation study really, as much as you'd love to take advantage of bonus depreciation, what's that line where you're like, it's just it's just too expensive. I can't I can't sink my teeth into that. I think that that's a so there's two there's two different issues, right? There's the business decision, there's the risk decision that you're comfortable with as the real estate investor, and then there's also a risk decision that your CPA is comfortable with because they have to if you're using an, a, th a third party to do your taxes, they have to sign the tax return. Sure. And so if you say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to be a little loosey goosey about it, and I'm just going to use one of these online cost seg calculators, which totally exist." You can get comfortable with that as the investor yourself, but if your CPA is not on board, well, they ain't they ain't signing the tax return, right? And so there's a it, it's a it's actually a it's not a singular decision. It's a conversation with whoever's doing your taxes, and um, and then a business decision based off of that. So I, I guess I can't give you a I wouldn't I wouldn't give you a full threshold on just like hey at a three at three hundred thousand dollars it starts to make economic sense because. There's a risk. There's different risk tolerances amongst tax preparers, preparers as well. And you've got more business-minded tax preparers, and you've got more folks who are just not interested in the hassle and just want to do the CYA decision. Sure. Um, so, sorry, sorry to give you the, the evasive answer, but it's a little bit more complicated. No, it makes sense. Absolutely. Well, let sense. me add on to that. You know, the whole one of the whole purposes behind the cost seg is it does buy you a sense of insurance in the event of audit. If you get audited, the service will ask you for it. I mean, let there be no question. It's one of the first questions they will ask for. And if you can't produce one, that is not going to help you. Hmm. Au contraire. Mm -hmm. right? it, it kind of opens the door and says, okay, here's someone who didn't really play by the rules. They acknowledged they didn't play by the rules. What other rules did they not play by? Yeah, yeah it's kind of definitionally a bad act, right? You're in the safe harbor or you're not in the harbor. And once you're outside of the harbor, you're outside of the harbor, right? Like it's... Right. Yeah. Right. It does mean you lose, by the way. Being outside the harbor doesn't mean you lose. It just means you've got a very significant uphill battle to wage. So what else is going on uh, in terms of changes to things that we had gotten used to or that are coming up? We have got uh, the captive insurance companies, for those who have them outstanding. Those numbers have gone up significantly. 2023 was $2.65 million was the maximum premium that you could, uh, you could pay without the captive paying tax, on the premium at least. It's now up to 2.8 million, which is a very big change. Uh, whether you have the risk or not, or whether you have enough insurable risk, obviously is a different question. It's not a tax question; that's a insurable risk question. Uh, but if it's if it's available, you know, people will use that, no doubt. Uh, we do know that from the estate tax perspective, the the maximum amount that you can pass that you can pass free of estate taxes for your life has gone from about uh, 12.9 to about 13.8. So that's another big change, about nine hundred thousand. Let me, uh, let me uh, back up real quick. So on the captive insurance side of things, uh, what Doug's referring to there is not 
like a captive insurance in the context of like workers comp or general liability where you'll see some folks within the same industry pool their risk together because it makes more sense for them to self-insure, you know, self-insure amongst kind of a co-op versus going out and buying commercially available coverages. That's not what we're talking, what what he's referring to there. What what Doug's referring to is uh, the code section is 831B and it's a, it allows for captive insurance companies as a risk management structure uh, that they used to be much more popular uh, in the context of pool. There was these pooled captive insurance uh, structures and there were a lot of like organizers, sponsors that were basically these companies that were selling this as a tax strategy. And that is like, you know, like that. And so it got on the IRS's dirty dozen as, as, you know, as, as tax evasion, like a huge red flag for tax evasion. Um, and there were a lot of those companies that were putting those structures, these pooled captive insurance structures together and charging big fees off of it. And there were, and it wasn't really insurance. It wasn't being used as insurance. There wasn't, it wasn't actuarially backed. Um, there were never any claims. They were just basically evading taxes, using the using the structure to evade taxes. And as a result, they they lost the the, the IRS the, the service won a number of cases against these structures. And they have been that industry has been really whittled down uh, over the course of the past five six years, um, particularly. Uh, it is still. Uh, is still a legal structure when done correctly. Uh, and the idea is to write insurance for your operating companies for which there is not commercially available coverage. Um, and so, you, you know, this is not for property and casualty. This is not for general liability. This is not for workers comp. This is for originally designed for farmers, frankly, in the Midwest to insure mm-hmm. against drought years. And so there's a tax benefit to encourage farmers to save for drought years um, so that they became you know, more resilient businesses. Now, they didn't write it just for farmers, though. All businesses uh, can have a captive, and a, a very large percentage of the Fortune 500 has captive insurance company, uh, has captive insurance companies. So it can be used correctly, but it's still a structure that invites bad actors and uh, what Doug was alluding to, though, is that the the amount of uh, deduction or de- amount of, amount of uh, shelter, I guess, that the uh, captive insurance company uh, can achieve ha- continues to go up. So while the the IRS continues to crack down, it continue the the potential tax benefits continue to go up. So there's a little bit of a back and forth there. Um, Sorry, that was a big sideways, but captive insurance company is, I would say, not commonly talked about, not some, not a structure that a lot of folks know know about, um, but may be worth researching uh, because there's a lot of unique risks to real estate investing and real estate lending that can be um, mitigated if this structure is used uh, a correct, appropriately, you know, um, as real insurance. Yeah, I'll just um, quickly pipe in there. Uh, we like captive insurance companies, but we stopped doing a lot of them. Uh, we stopped not because we thought they didn't work. It's because we didn't think the clients could comply. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got a client to, this is our, you know, our firm position. We have a client that can comply. We know they'll do the right thing. They'll actually go and get the actual studies. They'll follow the actual studies. They won't make it up. Uh, they'll actually have claims because you know you'd be amazed how many captives I've seen that's been around for 10, 15 years and never had a single claim ever. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that's that's the best insurance company I've ever seen. 
Um, that's that's impressive, right? Or the stupidest business decision, yeah, buying insurance <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that never that's, happened. That's right. That's right. It's kind of yeah. like State Farm. They've never paid out. So what's the big deal? That's a joke for State Farm. Um, <laughs> there goes our State Farm uh, uh, <laughs> sponsorship. Sponsorship check. <laughs> Damn it. I was working um, on that. I mean, they're great structures, but they've got to be used right. And I agree with Jack. That, that marketplace used to be just saturated, and now it's really whittled down significantly. And my bet is will whittle down even more over the next couple of years. But they work. You just got to do them right. And then the other thing that you mentioned there was the, um, you know, the death tax, right? That's what's commonly referred to as the death tax, the, the estate tax exemption, which went up significantly five, six years ago mm-hmm. um, and continues to climb, frankly, right? So now it's, what did you say the new number is for 2024? It's about 13.8 million. So 13 point, 13 point, you can pass along $13.8 million of assets the, the, the classic structure is to put those assets into a trust uh, that has your heirs as the classic structure as a beneficiary, though it need not be. But, you know, the classic structure is, um, you know, with your heirs as a beneficiary and it's $13.8 million per individual. So if you are married, that's twenty-seven six for mm-hmm. you and your spouse to pass along um, death tax exemption free uh, or right. sorry, death tax free. Death um, tax free. So if you 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 can have a twenty seven point six million dollar estate that you put into a trust for the benefit of your kids, and that's based off of today's valuation as well, right? Because as typically as part of that maneuver, you get a valuation of the assets, a third party, but you must. It's very smart to get a third party valuation of the assets that you're going to put into this structure. Um, and what was it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, this number was like a couple million, right? And now we're right. talking, you know, mid 20s, mid 20s million, like it's a humongous exemption. Do you think that that's going to uh, stay in place? I was, you know, that that was that part of it was that big jump part of the Trump tax code. And it's just no one's talked about it or, you know, no one's no one's taken issue with it. So it continues to climb. How did it get to 27.6? Hmm. So when I started practicing, it was uh, it was a whopping six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Know, just to, to age myself, there about twenty five years ago. Uh, then it jumped to a million, and I remember the whole state tax bar was absolutely just giddy with themselves. I mean, we got a whole three hundred fifty thousand dollars extra. Right, it's fifth. It's more than fifty percent. Uh, that jumped to a million five, and then somewhere along the lines, I believe it was two thousand ten, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, it was then. It was then attached to inflation. So it went to 5 million and then it was inflation adjusted. Uh, and that number's just been climbing, climbing, climbing. 2026, it's supposed to drop again. And it looks like it'll probably be 5 million in 2026, depending on who you ask, what those numbers are. Uh, yes, yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of a huge deal, right? Like, so there's a moment right now. We have a there's a two year period, and who knows what happens with the White House and with in, any future tax bills. The, there's you know that that can change, that may change, but certainly the certainly the tax professionals are going, or the estate planning rather, the estate planning professionals are going to be calling up their entire Rolodex and being like, if you haven't done this, you have two years and it's going to drop from 27 million, you know, 27 to 30 million down to five. And like, if you're going to do it, do it now. Cause we'll, we'll, you know, we may never see this again, right? We may never have the, and, and it's true, right? We may never have the political environment again to st- where the, where this exemption is at those levels. So That's right. 
um, there's a that, that's been a booming business for state state planning for the past you know whatever five ten years has been a, a booming business based off of this exemption as a you know product that those folks will help you put in place a state well, planning I think that's, product. That's probably a good description all in. Um, you know, my bet is it, it is going to go away. I mean, remember the estate tax has historically been the political football for everybody. I mean, everyone's mm-hmm. kicking that thing. Um, so depending on who's in power and who's got control, we'll be able to define what that is. There's been efforts to make it go away permanently. It's never been passed. Uh, there's been efforts to reduce it substantially. Some of that has actually happened in the past. Uh, I think whoever whoever wins the next election will be the one to decide it because 2026 is your big day. The election's right around the corner. They'll have about one year to fix it, whatever that fix may look like. Uh, from a budgetary perspective, you know, people talk about the estate tax all the time. It's like this massive thing. You You read the Wall Street Journal. You know, it's less than 1% of the revenue. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it, it is a, if you got rid of it tomorrow, there's almost no implication. Uh, the but real from a political be, point of view, it's like the football. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because nobody likes wealthy people, whatever that it's, term may mean. It's haves versus have nots for sure. That's right. That's right. Just, just my, my mind can't help, my, can't, I can't help myself, but I was thinking about the, the conversation we were having on the previous episode regarding the transparency and disclosures that are going to apply also to trusts the combination of trusts being formed over the over the next 2 years and that information becoming at least in the government's public domain uh man that could be weaponized right like mm. well, that's going to get weaponized isn't it like that's that that's a little that's a little creepy and scary like that's going to happen you know they won't be able to help themselves anyway I mean, it, it changes the state planning yeah. Um, no. yeah. Historically, you just transfer the NLC interest or partnership interest and we're done. Now it's a transfer of a partnership interest and a filing with the U.S. government right, about who now owns it. Um, you know, a lot of that's going to be kind of be very different. Um, when you did this, be, when you did this filing this morning, you said you did it yourself. I'm, I'm, we're circling back to the previous mm-hmm. podcast's topic, sure. but it, it's, I guess it's related. Did you have to disclose assets or income as part of that filing? No. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. is that? I, I don't know if that makes a difference. Um, the government's already announced, Finson's already announced they're going to report it directly to the Internal Revenue. So, you know, it's a matching. They'll be able to match it up. Yeah. They oh, should yeah. be able to match it up. Yeah. There's a lot of things the government does poorly. Uh, matching is not one of them. They're really good at that. This may yeah. be a uh, horrible question, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. So if I, if I set up an estate in a trust, kids with as beneficiaries and uh, I'm married and my estate is say $20 million and the law changes in 26, does that then become the, and and let's say it goes down to $5 million exemption. Does that then become the exemption? I'm no longer, even though I set my estate up when it was a $27 million exemption, do I need to die today to get that $27 million before or, or tell me how's that work? So, so the humorous part of me would say it depends who you're asking. If they like you, it's one answer. If they don't, it's another. Uh, <laughs> but, but the real answer, the real answer is the government said that once you've made the gift, the gift is exempt. It'll be exempt forever. Uh, so, if it goes back down to five million, you basically have nothing left. You can't give away any more. Uh, but whatever you gave away is given away. Now, can you, you make a filing when you do the gift? 
Like it's a it's an overt filing. It's a specific filing that you do with the IRS to say, hey, I, today I gave away five million dollars. I see. And so then, if the exemption goes up, well, you've got more room, right, to to put more in as that exemption goes up. But if the as as Doug just said, if it goes down, well, you're already above it. What's done is was legal at the time, fine, but gates closed. Ah, That's right. Interesting. That's right. It's um, it gets it gets more difficult at times, but that's essentially right. The form is uh, form seven hundred nine. It's just how you report a gift. It's, you have to report it, and you have to give all your valuation to the government as well. Interesting. Um, Doug, what else is uh, new, changing on the horizon? Well, we see uh, big changes in qualified opportunity zones coming up. Mm. Um, that's in two years. Two years, you have to recognize all the gain. Uh, so those people who've made use of those, whether it's for residential that they're renting or commercial or anything else, uh, they need to keep in mind that in two years, they have to have enough cash to pay the tax. It'll be interesting to see what the banks are doing at that point. That's when the deferral expires. So if you did a qualified opportunity zone, you just to, for those who are less familiar with it, um, you had a capital gain based off of the sale of some capital asset. And you, rather than do a 1031, for example, rather than do a 1031 exchange, you could self-report the gain and invest those dollars into a qualified opportunity fund, which owns owned owned either real estate or businesses that uh, were qualified opportunity zone uh, properties or businesses. And so by doing that, by investing that capital gain dollars, the money's fungible, right? So you just said, hey, yeah, I, you know, I, I sold some real estate and I had $300,000 of gain and I invested that $300,000 into this new uh, LLC that, is, that owns real estate in a, a census tract that makes this uh, qualify as an opportunity fund. And by doing... By, and so that def- you, and then you didn't have to pay taxes on that capital gain. So the twenty percent, uh, you know, sixty thousand dollar tax bill was deferred. Now until you're saying until twenty twenty six, and so now, uh, taxes due, and question is where's the cash coming from? Is that you know is that is there enough real estate? Is there refinance proceeds? Is there enough cash left over in that entity? Um, how are you gonna you know the, the bills the bills coming due? Can I, can I just, uh, before you answer that, uh, I know investors around the country who um, have taken advantage of opportunity zones, um, and, and it's exactly the way Jack just said. They sold an asset, they had uh, a gain, they put that into an opportunity zone fund, but these projects don't always uh, happen overnight. And uh, I know guys that, that did, you know, that, that took advantage of that uh, law a few years ago, and they they haven't even broken ground yet. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying that for so there's no cash flow. It's just they're just they're still waiting on permits and and uh, entitlements on the land and and you know going vertical as they say. And so that tax bill is still coming due in 2026 on on the gain that occurred as as getting into the opportunity zone. That's yeah, right. it's, and it's due at the it's due at the taxpayer level. So you know you might have to reach in your other pocket, right? The money doesn't have to come from the 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 QOF uh, property. It doesn't have to come from that fund necessarily. But yeah, the the it's but it's a it's a taxable event that is coming back up. It was just a deferral. It was never a you know it was never an abatement. 
That's correct. So the, the real question is if it's going to come from the project, whether the project's even financeable. And Craig, I got clients in exactly the same position. They bought properties. They were great properties. Sure. Um, permitting has slowed down for whatever the reason may be. Everything is taking longer than it should. Uh, you know, COVID came around, right? I mean, whatever it may be. Um, and I keep telling them, you got two years. And come October 2027, you know, that check's getting writ whether you like it or not. Yeah, start saving your money now. And we've had a couple of banks tell us that they're only going to finance the best properties. You know, why should we be financing everything, right? We, mm. we know it's a unique opportunity. We know that we could squeeze the borrowers because they have real cash that's due. Um, you know, at, at least to being honest about it, I, I found that actually quite refreshing. Hey, would you say, so do you think that g given there's only two more years for the deferral, are qualified opportunity fund opportunities, uh, are they kind of not, worth the squeeze at this point? Like, is that, is that over because you're only getting, you're only achieving a two year deferral and that, you know, and, and there may be just some like cost benefit that, that makes it not mm. worth it anymore. And, and we're going to go, you know, and people should start looking back at 1031s as the, the classic cap gains deferral mechanism, or is there still a place for QOZs for the next couple of years? So and are they, gonna, like Q are, they, are they phase out of 2026 too? Are they just done after that? So interestingly, no, they don't. Um, I like I like QOZs for reasons other than deferral. I, I don't get me wrong; I like the deferral. It was the early years, you know, five six years deferral and fifteen percent basis or ten percent basis. That made the math kind of interesting, but I don't think it really changed the math because there was an underlying assumption that I believe, just personal opinion, is false. I think um, Congress is going to raise taxes in twenty twenty six. It's like why not? Mm. Uh, if you look at our change in our deficits, when what fourteen trillion over a relatively short period of time, you know, a two percentage hit to capital gains, if you raise the tax rate by two percentage points, that's a lot of money coming in. And if you're going to do it, you do it in 2026 when all this gains can be recognized anyway. Mm. Uh, I do like the 10-year play. We deferred ourselves into a more uh, into a, a less beneficial tax environment. Great. You know, like you know, so we, we actually ran those numbers for some clients early on, which was how much increase in taxes do we need in order to be even? Mm -hmm. um, and no one liked the answer because it was only about you know, two percentage points, which would break even point. Um, if it goes above that, then you're actually negative. You're in the hole. You should have paid the tax. Should have paid the tax. Yeah. Should have paid the tax. I do like it for the 10 year hold. So if you've got a portfolio you're going to hold for 10 years, I think that's the real play for QOZs, which mm -hmm. is after 10 years, if you're holding onto the property, you essentially get a full basis step up. So you could sell it in 10 years tax free. Right. Uh, and that's the real play, I think, for QOZs. And that continues to be the case. And, that and, and that's still eligible, right? It's, it's still a 10-year hold. The clock starts now, or the, cart, the clock starts at the beginning of the project. But that's still available uh, for those 10-year hold deals, that basis step up. That's correct. That's correct. So for those buying real estate, they, you have to, you, your analysis should be on a 10-year hold. Right. Ignore the deferral. To me, the deferral for two years is negligible anyways. I mean, you can run the math. It's tiny. Um, this deferral over five years isn't as much as people think it is anyway, because you have an inflation hit and inflation's been higher than I think people anticipated. It's only higher than most people budget. Hey, I've heard a bunch of stuff about like uh, conservation easements. Never participated in one myself, but I know that you've got a fair amount of experience in that realm. Um, you know, what can you explain that basic structure to folks? I just think they'll find it interesting, but then sure. and then also explain kind of the landscape of conservation easements as uh, in the eyes of the IRS. 
Maybe we can so, t- discuss exactly what they are first and then get into it. Yeah. So conservations came, conservation easements came into the code, I think, about 1958. It's been around a long, long time. And the original concept was that if you have property and you want to conserve it because it's got value, it could be green space, it could be historically important, uh, it could be anything that really made sense. Uh, you could conserve that by giving rights to charity, specifically usually the land trusts that were gobbling up land or, or uh, trying to preserve green space. And you'd get a deduction roughly equal to the fair market value of the reduction value of your real estate. So imagine you've got you know, 200 acres of land and or you're in a city and you've got some extra lots and you want to give away those lots so there's green space for everybody. Um, assuming you're qualified, then you'd be, able to, you'd, do, you'd be able to take a charitable deduction for the fair market value of the easement itself. Now, the math is a little bit more complicated. We can get to the details of the math if you want to, but simply speaking, it's just the fair market value. And so it was, it, the idea was that it was developable land before we're going to put this easement in place and state that you can't develop this land for 50 years, 99 years, whatever the forever, whatever the number is. Forever. And then that easement has then dimin- diminished the value of that land. And your deduction could be the difference between the developable value and the post easement conservation value. Right. So that's when things changed. Things changed about, let's just call it 10 years ago, because it's roughly about right. It was a little bit later than that. Um, and what people started doing is they started getting this land that was otherwise crappy land. Like no one would build on this land. It was just bad land. It's going up a mountain, going down a cliff, whatever it may be. And then they would try to get a multi-use or um, industrial, or my personal favorite was um, dense residential. Mm, on the property. Get it zoned that way? Get it zoned. Yeah. And, you know, the, the city is looking at this. Highest and best use, right? So if I can put up, if, if the rule is I need one property per acre and I can get it to one property per quarter acre, then I've basically got 400% more I could do. And therefore, in theory, the value of the property has gone up significantly, right? Um, some of these were done on a wink and a nod. Some of them were done, you know, realistically done. Uh, so you you get the highest and best use. So you may have some farmland that's been used for God knows how long for chickens, cows, goats, whatever, whatever it was, you know, sorghum. Um, people would come in and they'd say, look, we don't want your land. We just want to put an easement on it. You could still hunt on it. You could still plant some stuff on it, but we have to keep a green space. They'd then go, they'd literally rezone these properties to you know, 10 story buildings, mixed use, whatever it took. Uh, and then they would go and they'd raise money into partnerships so that people could get a charitable deduction. Because after all, the highest and best use of my property is now this dense residential or mixed use property, even though I've got farms next door. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And they would generate these very large charitable deductions, you know, four times, five times. I've seen them as high as eight times, even 10 times, uh, whatever you'd put in. The service became very jaundiced on this. In fact, started prosecuting some of the spot. Well, we'll call them sponsors, syndicators, sponsors. I guess it depends on uh, on your perspective. Uh, the big one being EcoVest, which is uh, probably the first one the service went after. They went after them criminally and civilly. Mm. Uh, that recently resolved last year. Um, the criminal charges went away. The agreement was that they would never engage in conservation easements anymore. They paid back I don't know ten or fifteen million dollars. 
But if you read through the numbers, the, the profits for these syndicators were in the hundreds of millions. They were, they were, they were huge. I think Harry Reid had, had a bunch of desert land. They did this in Nevada with, didn't yeah. they? There's a lot of people that do these things. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So the government came out with a safe harbor of essentially two and a half to one, which means you're at par, right? There's no benefit. You know, rinse, hmm. wash, it's, you know, it's equal. Um, the service is still aggressively prosecuting these things. Um, they've almost gone blind on everything. Uh, if they see the conservation easement, the underlying presumption is that there's bad actors. Guilty until uh, proven innocent. Not yet guilty and tried as far as they're concerned. I mean, mm. that, that's just a formality in their mind. Um, and the service usually wins at the trial court on, on appraisals and other matters. Challenging the appraisal, saying that it's a, 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 a juiced up appraisal. Yeah, you have actually several appraisers who's been banned uh, before practicing before the Internal Revenue. Wow. Because their appraisers were that, their appraisals were that bad. Mm. Um, you have several people actually, uh, attorneys included, if I recall correctly, that were banned from practicing before the Internal Revenue for their conduct in some of these actions. Uh, what we are seeing is on appeal, the service tends to lose the appraisal battle. Um, but the cases aren't going away. I got several friends of mine that actually are syndicators in these deals um and they're not they're not really a lot of these people are not pushing hard to settle the dispute because the theory is the longer it goes on the more time there's for political wind change the more likely there's going to be a different result you know we can argue whether that's right or wrong uh, but then you've got other people on the other side uh, you know, class action attorneys that have already you know, been gathering up people to file class action lawsuits against the syndicators uh, hmm. these things are bad uh, I, you know, I, I tend to tell my clients, do they work? Absolutely. Like, no question. How much money do you want to spend for the opportunity of possibly winning a case that the service can't settle? They just precluded from settling. It's a national office issue. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're toxic. At this point, they're just toxic. Gotcha. Interesting. Thanks. I was curious about that. <clears throat> yeah, stay away. At this point, I think the, the advice I'm giving my clients is stay away. Um, I remember about a month ago, you sent me, switching gears here, uh, the Workforce Housing Tax Credit. I'd been, I've, been, I've been hearing about this tax credit for, I don't know, five, six years. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems to be relatively bipartisan, and yet it hasn't been passed yet. Uh, there's, you know, kind of a recognition that affordable housing is a, a, you know, a need within the country, right. and that the low-income housing tax credit produces you know multifamily buildings that are full of low income housing but that that is not probably the optimal housing or social solution and so there's look, looking for i think you know the the ideas that the sponsors of this bill are looking for another way to incentivize affordable housing and this is what they've come up with and it hasn't been passed yet but it keeps coming back it also hasn't died yet it keeps coming nope. back um, t talk to us a little bit about that and your thoughts on it. So there's some things that the government has, that Congress and the government have done really well. Um, one of them is low-income tax housing credit. That, that worked for a very long time, but it also brought us things like uh, very dense inner city, what are right. now almost slums or very dangerous places. Not always, but sometimes successful. We have something called new market tax credits that has done a great job for changing the economics it's almost always commercial, big projects, you know, $100 million, $200 million projects. Um, those are kind of two things that the government has done really well that have proven to actually make a difference. And they were economically sound. 
the LIHTC has fallen out of credit, fallen out of favor, uh, because there's a social implication that's not very good, or at least is perceived. The you're economics, are, which is you're, you're concentrating poverty. You've, you've created a building, you've created affordable housing, but then you've put all of these folks who are low income in one place. And the at least HUD believes that the you know the jury's in on that. That concentrating poverty within a census tract does not lead to good social outcomes. And instead, we should be spreading it out. Right? We should be dispersing uh, low income folks into areas of opportunity, I think is the capital A, O, you know, capital O areas of opportunity, mm -hmm. higher income census tracts. And that over the long term produces better social outcomes. It's pretty overt social engineering that they're, oh, yeah. that they're undergoing here. But I think that the, the low income housing tax credit, the project based voucher, uh, examples, you know, over the past 30 years were, the solution to projects, right? Like that was the answer to public exactly. housing. Let's privatize exactly. it. Right. But mm -hmm. we're still got the negative social implicate or social um, outcomes based off of the concentration of poverty, whether it's publicly run or privately run, it's still not optimal. And they're looking for an answer to that, right? Right. And those areas don't gentrify. Um, right. For the most part, they just don't gentrify. So now you've got a city that's got this huge area that is always going to be low income, was built to be low income, caters to low income, but you can't, you can't improve it. Uh, so the, this new work act, the new, new workers act, workforce tax act will be interesting to see. I think it's got legs. I think it'll be the next administration. You know, Congress is still highly polarized about everything. I mean, anything. Uh, apparently, even pulling a fire alarm now is highly polarized. You know, everything is based upon something strange, um, whatever. Very but I think it's going to have to. Yeah, it's it's um, in light of what's going on in the world, everything has become highly politicized. And I think in the wrong ways and polarized in just very unhealthy ways. This one, I think, has legs. It, it is bipartisan support. It's expensive. That's part of the problem is it's not cheap. So the costs on it are going to be high. Um, but I think it's going to get enacted one way or the other, and it's going to move poverty out from inner cities and kind of spread it into the suburbs. And you know, you're going to get into the NIMBY issue, right? Not in my backyard. Yep. The cities will have to deal with that. You know, Congress doesn't care about that as long as it's not their backyard. Right? It's got to be someone else's backyard. Um, so they'll kick that over to the states and the cities and the counties, and they'll all solve that problem. But the goal here is is to give people who are in need of opportunities that are low income the ability to live in socially better places, um, likely lower in crime because it tends to be with these light tech uh, projects are they tend to turn into higher crime, not necessarily high crime, but higher crime. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for it. I don't feel the need to get into that because everyone's got their own opinion. Uh, and I just like, I don't care. I just look at the numbers. I'm a simple numbers guy in those things. Um, and if I'm wrong, great, then I'm wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. My wife tells me all the time I'm wrong. Um, you know, the goal here is to really make those projects maybe not more affordable because obviously high density, close quarters is cheaper to build, but to help resolve the long-term problems and helping giving these people a hand up or the ability to move up the social ladder and the economic ladder. I think you're already uh, seeing a model of that, uh, certainly here in, in Baltimore, uh, and other uh, places around the country where I visited, where it's clear that there's low income housing being built, but there has to be some percentage of that housing that's going to also be not low income. And, uh, you know, Columbia, Maryland would be a, a perfect example of that back in the early 70s, where 
a man had a vision to build, uh, you know, basically workforce housing amongst more affluent housing. Um, but I think that what, what I'm seeing in terms of some of these projects uh, are there has to be that percentage of in the building or in the development, subsidized housing versus non-subsidized housing. And however that's going to work out uh, amongst the inhabitants of that development uh, remains to be seen. But that appears to be the push amongst the legislative class in, in D.C. right now. Not to have, you know, we're going to make this cordoned off area like we did in cities across the, you know, po uh, industrial cities across the country um, for, uh, you know, Section 8 or low income subsidized housing. That, that I think, is a concept that has been tried and failed. Uh, and I, I don't see them going back to that based on what we know about demographics today and sort of what happens in areas that are just you know, completely low income, right? Yeah, I think, I think it, it, there definitely seems to be the political will for to, to approach this problem in a, a different way, the way you guys are just talking about. And we've got the, the workforce housing tax credit, which has been introduced, I believe. There's also a workforce housing, uh, I'm sorry, no, no, no. The uh, Neighborhood Homes Investment Act is another uh, another bill National Community Stabilization. I'm familiar with that through the National Community Stabilization Trust. They're one of the lead sponsors there. And the ex-president of, uh, director of NCST is now the director of the FHA, uh, Julia Gordon. So they're, they're still pushing that really hard. It, it seems that over the next couple of years here, we may, we may actually see some version of this that is for scattered site affordable development, which um, you know, you know, we could we, we haven't spent any time going into the specifics of these acts because, frankly, like they're they're early in the they're early yeah. into the machine. So who the hell knows what the sausage is going to look like on the way out? You know, what, what, on, on an actual passable bill. So it's kind of not worth dwelling on the details at this at this point in in the the passage. But there's a number of different. Uh, but, but they're trying to they're all trying to solve the same kinds of problems and seems probable to me that the country's scattered site residential investors are going to be the boots on the ground mechanism for this to happen, right? Like Absolutely. this isn't going to be some new public agency. Multifamily, the multifamily industry is not built for this kind of solution, but the small entrepreneurs um, who are buying houses and fixing them up all across the country in all kinds of neighborhoods are already the boots on the ground, right? Like it feels like there's going to be a much closer connection to a true, you know, to a truly private sector solu um, operational solution than even the LIHTC industry, which has become its own like thing, right? Like that's not, right. you're, you do LIHTC and that's all you do. You don't do anything other than LIHTC, generally speaking. Very few developers cross LIHTC with other private sector um, development aims. So... Uh, it's become like its own industry, and this may be something new that actually is creates more opportunities for smaller investors to participate in um, uh, in helping to solve these problems. I think there's a need for the change. Uh, I think Congress sees the need for the change. Um, I do agree that these can't be large projects; they just won't work. I mean, what they're trying to accomplish would fail if you put up a big apartment building. It'd probably work in a classic homeowners association or townhomes, you know, a couple mm. houses here, a couple houses there will make a difference. Uh, the real issue to me 
and all these things is how is it actually get implemented? I'm, I'm a man with a great deal of confidence that when you give politicians the chance to do something right, they'll find a way to make it happen wrong. Where, where we've seen it get, get implemented poorly in Baltimore specifically, right? Big, big push for affordable housing in a city like Baltimore. Um, but where the public programs have really struggled is that they use the they use the multifamily programs as a reference point, and then they try to adopt it for single family as opposed to creating its own thing. And mm-hmm. like the 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 real thorny devil in the details is site control, right? Like buying houses if, if you want if you want to buy a if you if you want to control because because they they're trying to look for some efficiencies in the application, right? Like they don't want to review individual property applications. It's a it's a bear administratively for them to do that. They'd really prefer to review a hundred units at a time. But the thing is, if you want to spread it out, if you want to spread out poverty, right? De- deconcentrate poverty. Well, people don't get site control over a hundred units on a decentralized basis, right? On a scattered site basis, and so they write the application that you have to have site control at the time of application. And then the end, we're all like, that's not a thing. Like I don't buy, I don't put a hundred houses under contract and then, you know, convert them, you know, make them eligible for a particular program, but I can go find a hundred houses this year, right? Like give me, give me guardrails. Our point is our point is like the right approach would be just give me guardrails and then I'll go find houses that fit this, the, you know, fit within the guardrails, mm. but don't tell me that I, but, but don't require the addresses at the time of application mm. for, you know, for the grant, for the subsidy, for the appraisal gap, um, you know, uh, trying to fill the appraisal gap, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the aim of that particular program is. Anyway, I digress, but I've, I've pounded my head against the wall for uh, the better part of, 15 years trying to, you know, work more closely with the public sector in solving this issue, these issues. And, and those are, that's just one of my uh, personal frustrations, pet peeves about where the rubber in, hits the road and then nothing happens, right? Because the program was just poorly designed, you know, in, with, that, with details like that being the thing that takes it down. Jack, you and I have actually talked about that because the, the problem, the problem only gets bigger right of affordable housing especially with as i can continue to say 15 million of the world's poorest and least educated people crossing our border they all have to live somewhere and so the, there's a there's a great opportunity there but i think what what congress and even local municipalities are are grappling with is one how do we how do we make that work and two how do we dip our beak in right and um you know, sorry to seem so mercenary, but let's let's face it, that's exactly what it is. Um, and but I, I continue to believe that it creates one of the greatest opportunities over the next fifteen to twenty years for a smart guy like you to figure out, and and certainly like Doug to uh, figure out the um, legal aspects of it all. So, Doug, what else uh, is there? Anything else that we should cover today? What else have we missed? That's changing. I think those are the- those are the really big issues that we see coming around. I think there's a there's an expectation that there will be some significant tax act changes in two years, mm. uh, you know, after the election, and hopefully a lot of this has gone behind us. The government's got to raise revenue. I see tax rates only going up. You've got two wars going on. I know the Ukraine war is extremely expensive as it goes. Uh, I think there's a misunderstanding of what expensive means in this context. You know, it's not like we are building new stuff. We're giving them the old stuff, and then we're building our own stuff. Um, but the stuff costs money, uh, and they're looking for billions of dollars on this. And the only way to make that happen is taxes have to go up. Uh, so my, my bet is you'll see a change, a significant change in a lot of that. 
Um, I think the next tax act is probably 2006. Is my bad? 2026. Yeah, it's my bad. I'm sorry, 2026. It's 2006. Sorry, 2020. I'm off by by 20 years. We're trapped. Uh, Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 2026. And I think it's going to be significant. I think it's going to be a real real change in operations as tax acts go. That's kind of my gut. If real estate continues to fall, which is, if you believe the newspapers, that's what's happening. I'm not saying it's true. So the newspapers are announcing, so therefore it's got to be true because the media has never gotten anything wrong ever. Um, That's going to make everything even harder to deal with. Super interesting. And 87,000 agents to collect it all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you give us a, so where's the IRS at, right? Like I remember a couple of years ago, I got told that I should be scared because the IRS was just getting a billion dollars of funding and they were coming after everybody. What's, mm-hmm. what's the reality? Uh, I've seen a reduction of audits, not an increase in audits. Hmm. Uh, the audits that we, that we have seen have been lower quality audits. They're not asking the right questions. They don't even understand. Um, we literally had an audit last year where the agent was upset with us because our balance sheet balanced. You know, the assets equal the liabilities. And that was that was literally a 30 minute rant by an agent about why the two have to be false because you can't have a balance sheet where they match. I, I wish I could make this stuff up. Um, what we actually see in the real world is attrition is eating into the new hires for the service. Mm. Uh, so what you're getting is you're losing a lot of the more educated guys, the guys who've been around 20, 30 years. They're retiring, new people are coming in who have no experience. Um, I'm not as concerned about audits anymore. Hmm. Uh, when I get a good auditor, I'm actually really happy. We can have an intelligent conversation about what things actually look like and how things actually work. Uh, we have seen a change in, in the appeals process. Some of the, the agents on appeals appear to be, at least from what we've seen, much more interested in the process and not the outcome, which is not what appeals are supposed to be about. Um, we actually had a case where we filed our appeals. We, we went through the whole process. Yeah, and you're talking um, about you're in tax court at this point. No, this is between your audits. You got your assessment by the Internal Revenue. They say you owe us X. Uh, instead of going to tax court, you can go into appeals process, which is internal with the gotcha. government. And then if you lose on appeals, you can then go to the tax court. Mm. And we actually had case law, like square up exactly on point. It was the exact same fact pattern. and. Instead of just conceding the case, they made us show up at the hearing right, for an hour and a half hearing, go through the whole process, explain everything, only to then say, okay, we agree, we'll just drop the case. <laughs> um, it, is, it is increasing costs. We do see that, but we don't see better audits. We see worse audits, just higher costs. Is the number of agents down? Yes. From what we've seen, yeah. the number of agents is down. So because quantity of attrition and quality are both down. Yeah, perfect combination for you know good administration. It's a great formula. It is. I mean, it, the numbers were always a little bit exaggerated. Um, you know, the, the attrition rates. If you believe what the attrition was supposed to be, which I actually think are right, because the government knows who's going to go. We have good history on that. Uh, even if they hired all the agents and you kept the regular washout from new agents, you were down. It was a net loss to people. Um, and mm-hmm. the worst type of loss, right? Lose the experienced guys and bring in inexperienced guys. Right. So we have not seen a change. I don't think that's going to change either. Um, funding, overfunding the IRS has always resulted from Congress's perspective in abuse. And underfunding the IRS has always resulted in less income. So everyone's always trying to find where's that perfect spot. And the answer is it doesn't exist. 
Well, let's see. Good thing they're giving them guns now. Oh, see, yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother issue. Um, You know, they're not the only ones. The USPS also buys a lot of ammo and guns. Um, You know, it's, um, I couldn't resist. Well, look, I have a friend of mine who, um, who does uh, IP law and one of his clients manufactures uh, ammunition. He said the biggest buyers of his ammunition is all government agencies. He can't even make it for anybody else because the government agency is just buying it up. And it's astounding to me that that's what we're spending our money on. Super interesting. Yeah, we won't go down that rabbit hole, but we certainly could for maybe another episode. Doug, it has been a couple days worth. It has been a uh, real pleasure to have you. Can't thank you enough for your time, Jack. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciated a, uh, a an interesting and stimulating conversation as always, and we look forward to like to love to grab you again at some point in the future as as stuff starts to unravel and we see start to see changes. So really appreciate your time today, sir. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, guys. Well, another stimulating conversation on Real Investor Radio. We're thankful that uh, you all have turned in. We love to wish everyone a happy new year, prosperous new year, and a peaceful new year. And uh, thanks for tuning in once again, Jack. Any last words? No. Thank you, guys. Have a great one. All right. We'll see you next time on Real Investor Radio. Take care.